is the first of a new discipleship class, as many of you know. One of the things that we try to do is we have a, a doctrine in life class and a biblical studies track, typically. So one will be teaching through books of the Bible or something like that. Um, and then the other class will be teaching either a Christian doctrine or working through a Christian life issue. It just happened to be that we decided to do a parenting class at the same time. So it's sort of like Christian life and Christian doctrine. <laughs> Uh, and then the parenting class is going to be shorter. So uh, Sam class, who when he comes, he'll be teaching through a book of the Bible while we're still in this class. So this class is going to be a little bit extended and longer than normal just so that we can finish up the year and get back on track of our trimester schedules. So we're going to extend the class out maybe just basically till the end of December. Obviously, there'll be some uh, times where we won't have the class due to the holidays and stuff. But So the doctrine we're going to cover in this class is the doctrine of man and sin. We have taught through various doctrines over the years at Cow Creek. We're trying to work our way through some of the fundamental areas of Christian theology and so we're gonna spend time on this and I hope that you see that this has become an extremely controversial and important doctrine for Christians to have clear in their mind not only what we believe but why we believe it because if there's anything that's been attacked in our recent our most recent uh, experience here in America it's the doctrine of man you know what the Bible says about human beings and then, of course, sin is right there alongside it. So we're going to work through what does the Bible teach about this issue. We're going to start with the doctrine of man, and this will be the first session. And we're going to cover the subject of man as creature, which, you know, perhaps in previous uh, eras of church history, you wouldn't have spent as much time talking about man's creation because it was all assumed as sort of the ABCs of everyone, your typical worldview, uh, and you would focus more on salvation. But nowadays, we have to really recognize that unless we start with the creation of humanity, nothing else makes sense. And so we can't just simply assume it. We have to think through what the Bible says about man's origin as a creature of God. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, but before we dive in, let me pray and ask God's blessing on this class and on this session. Father, we thank you for creating us and also making us new in Christ, redeeming us through his life and death and resurrection. We thank you for the new life we have in Christ and the fact that you have reconciled us to yourself that we now are at peace with you and have a standing in your favor, have been adopted as your own children. We thank you for that. We pray that you would teach us of our origins today. Teach us not only what to believe, what your scriptures teach, but also why we believe it. Give us a grounding of understanding in terms of this matter of our creation. And so we pray your blessing upon it, that we would not only learn truths in our head, but that they would mold and shape our mindset and our values, that they would touch our hearts deeply. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So let's dive in. I want to start just with the term man, because obviously 
Um, you could mean different things by that, right? You could just mean uh, you could mean a male, but in the Bible, the term is used more broadly than that. I just want to get that out of the way. The Hebrew word translated man in the Bible, that's the word in Hebrew, but you would pronounce it Adam. So does that ring a bell? The Hebrew word that means man is also the word that is the name that is given to the first man, Adam, right? The, the name Adam just means man. Um, and so what you see is that in the Old Testament, the word is used to describe human beings in general. So in fact, let's, let's go to, if you would, open up your Bibles to Genesis 1, and we'll look at, we'll look at uh, some text here. Here we have the, the word man. Um, in fact, you might even have a little uh, footnote next to the word man. Does anyone have a footnote? Then God said, let us make man. And then there's a footnote there. Does anyone see, look down at the bottom of the page? What does it say? You see it down there? What does it say in your Bible's footnote? Right, so it kind of sums it up there that in this verse they translate Adam, Adam as man, and you can see that it's being used in a general way because it encapsulates both males and females. When you start reading through, let us make man, that is mankind, in our image, after our likeness, and then you go down to verse 27, so God created man, that is mankind, in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So there's a sense in which both male men and women together are man, mankind, right? Um, so there's, and that's not sexist that God decided to name the human race man. Uh, it actually speaks, I think, something to the uh, creation order that he has within mankind as well. And we'll talk about that later on. But sometimes the word Adam means human beings in general. Sometimes it is used to describe male human beings, not as a proper name, but male human beings in distinction from female human beings. So if you flip over to the next chapter, Genesis 2.25, you can see this. And the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. So there, it's not mankind in general, it's one particular human man. Um, and so, sometimes it's used to refer to humanity, sometimes it's used to refer to males within the human race, and then sometimes it is used as a proper name of the first man. And so, in fact, if you go over to Genesis chapter 5, you'll see that in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And you know that it's referring there, it's the same Hebrew word, Adam, that means mankind or man as in males, but here it's referring to the first man, Adam, because it's going to give you a genealogy, tell you who his descendants were. So when we're talk talking in the scripture about mankind, we have to recognize that this is what the way the Bible uses that language, the word man, when I say 
man is made in God's image. That could just refer to all human beings. Sometimes it refers to male human beings. Sometimes it refers to the first human being. And we would say that with the exception of um, with the exception of the sometimes the fact that Adam is used as a proper name of Adam, in the Greek, the word here, anthropos, is how you pronounce it. By the way, that's where we get anthropology, right? And what is anthropology? Study. Study of humanity, right? So anthropos is the Greek counterpart in, that's used in the New Testament to refer to humanity. And it's used in the similar way as either collectively all mankind or a male or men out of the human race. So that would be the Greek counterpart to it. So that's just a reminder when we're talking about the doctrine of man, that we're not just talking about male human beings. <laughs> we're talking about man, human beings in general. Okay, now let's um, dive in. I want to start with where did man come from? And this is a, a very important issue, isn't it? Because, for instance, if any of you, if any, uh, of you or have either been adopted or you have, you know someone like in your family who is adopted, you know that if any of you have been adopted or you know someone that has been adopted, you know that the issue of your origin is important to you. You, you sort of learn that when, if for some reason you don't know who your parents were or where you came from. It be, you, you recognize how important that is. And there's something about it that is settling to us, that gives us a sense of connection with what, why we are alive. And uh, when we know where we came from, it helps us to understand what the purpose of our life is and where things, where things are... It gives integration to our life. And so the issue of for human beings to understand where we came from is very important. And we know that there's different answers to this, isn't there? Right? Our society, our modern sort of secular society has received, has adopted in large part, perhaps without thinking too deeply about it. But the answer of modern science, which is that the, this idea that uh, of universal common ancestry, in other words, if you trace our lineage far enough back in time, we would be related to other, all the other animals and, and plants and uh, even microorganisms, that essentially we all came from uh, a universal uh, or a, a common ancestor and that we are the product of uh, the process of evolution guided by natural selection, um, and that our immediate ancestors were ape-like creatures, right? And so we're familiar with that, with that origin story. Obviously, there are some who would attempt to say that God guided this process and try to bring creation and evolution together. You've heard of theistic evolution. But in general, this would be a sort of materialistic way of describing our origins that in a godless universe we came about uh, from a, a common ancestor through a process of unguided that is by any intelligent means uh, evolution and that has profound implications if you think deeply about it because as we will talk about 
the question of where you come from pertains to your purpose in life and what your life is all about. And so the implications of this in terms of your purpose in life and why you're here and what your life is all about are profound, right? And I would say profoundly destructive. But we have to see that the Bible gives, praise God, a much different answer. The Bible tells us that Yahweh, who is, that's the name of the God revealed in the Bible, the one true God, Yahweh, revealed in the Bible, created mankind, created the first man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground. And in fact, let's read the story here just so we can have the text fresh in our, in our mind. Um, Genesis 2 verse 7 You guys remember that in Genesis 1, we have a sort of generalized creation account, God made man. Then he circles around in Genesis 2 and gives us a sort of zoomed in and slowed down version of that, give us more information about how God made man. And in Genesis 2, 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man, that's Adam, out of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So, out of all of the uh, creatures that God made, Genesis 2 teaches us of the importance of mankind, uh, both in the fact that there is much material, more material devoted to the creation of man in Genesis 1 than any of the other things that God made, but then also that he circles back around and gives us an even more in-depth. So it teaches us this is very important. We are God's special creatures that he formed personally out of the dust of the ground and breathed into us the very breath of life. So we are the special creation of God. And then, of course, he made the woman uh, also part of mankind in general, right? God made man. He made them male and female. So both men and women are part of man or mankind. But he made the man from the dust of the ground. And then we know the story that he made Eve from his rib. And so when you look down at verses 18 through 23... It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. And so you have another act of special creation to create the first woman, but instead of out of the dust, he creates it out of a part of the man. So, And that pointed to the fact that she would be a suitable partner who would not only join with the man in relationship, in covenant relationship, with in marriage, but also that she would be specially fit uh, to be a suitable 
partner for him, and particularly that her role would be to be a helper to him. And so, and there's a commonality. He recognizes there's something different from the woman. She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She's not the same, but suitable to him, of the same stuff, both human beings. And we know from chapter one, and we'll get into this later, both in the image of God, right? He made man in his own image. He made them male and female. Um, So this is a profoundly different origin story than here, right? And for us, we know that out of that original pair, Adam and Eve, all subsequent human beings descended. And each, and, and, and not only are we individual births through descendancy from the original pair, doesn't mean that our individual natures are somehow detached from God. You know, God created Adam and Eve directly. And that's true. That was in a different way than he created us. But the Bible also affirms that in some mysterious way that we ourselves each bear individually the fingerprints of God, that we ourselves, that God was active in a creative process in designing each one of us the way that we are. And we know that, for instance, from Psalm 139, a famous verse that we obviously know, especially when we, it's been brought to light, brought to bear on the issue of abortion and the life of an unborn child. But you remember these, these verses. In fact, could someone read Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16? Would somebody be willing to read that? Three, four, my inward parts. You knitted me together in the mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Right, so that tells us that, of course, um, our conception and development in our mother's womb was through a natural process, right? But it also tells us that that wasn't apart from God's activity through that, his designing activity. He wove us together so that each one of us can say, you know, you think of the young girl in her teenage years who says, I just have such a big nose, or why am I this way? And you're like, because God made you exactly that way, right? And so we understand there's lots of issues involved with that, but each one of us uh, is in some sense through the process of our development in the womb designed by the creator. And so that's why in a sense humanity is like, you know, snowflakes. None of us are exactly the same, are we? Uh, and so we, this is a profoundly different origin story from what, is adopted in our day in, in terms of the modern, scientific, secular, materialist understanding that we were made by God specially, um, both in terms of as a human race descended from Adam and Eve, but also individually as well. You know, which more warms the heart, right? <laughs> now, obviously, just because it warms the heart doesn't mean it's true, but but the fact that it is true, right, is so 
it, it should help us like like a person who was adopted and didn't know who their birth parents was and then they they discover who that was and it puts something into place into their mind and heart right that to know where we came from and that we were the special creation of God it's it is incredible um, then also the question of what is man's purpose so not only where did we come from, but why are we here on this earth, right? And again, we could say that modern science has given an answer to this. Now, obviously, if you ask, you know, your typical scientists or secular philo- materialist philosopher, if they were going, or just your average person who sort of believes in materialistic evolution, you say, you know, is there any purpose to human life? Probably they're not going to give the answer of, no, your life has no purpose. Only in their more honest moments, right? So the famous quote from Dawkins about, you know, that our, our, there's nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, right? That we have, that we, if you're really honest and you understand that, you know, materialistic evolution is true, as an origin story for humanity, then then there is no purpose, really. Um, And so we're relegated to just sort of making our own purpose for our life. Um, But really, that's just a fiction. From the perspective of our sort of modern, secular, scientific worldview, there is no ultimate purpose for man because he is the product of a random process in a godless universe, right? So it's only, of course, we we can't live that way. We have to live as if there is some purpose for our life, unless we're a nihilist, right? But nevertheless, if we were really honest and we faced the the true darkness, uh, we would have to admit that, no, there is no ultimate purpose. We just have to make it up for ourselves, right? But... The Bible says something quite different. The Bible says that we do have a purpose, and our purpose is derived from why God created us in the first place. Uh, And that God, of course, didn't create man because he was lonely, or he needed um, some toys to play with, or he just wanted someone to talk to. We know, for instance, from the doctrine of the Trinity that God... There's a sense of um, communal love, uh, of relationality within God himself, such that he is a self-sufficient, overflowing, abundant fountain of love and goodness. He needs nothing outside of himself. In fact, uh, Acts 17, he explicitly says this. Uh, Paul says this in his sermon to the Areopagus. In Acts 17, 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he didn't create out of a sense of deficiency or need. He created from a a place of self-sufficiency. So why did he create? Well, we know that the repeated testimony of Scripture in all kinds of different ways is that God created 
everything, including mankind, as the sort of climactic centerpiece of his creation to bring him glory. And so you could say that that's from two perspectives. Glory, in some cases in the Bible, speaks to the outshining of God's own nature, right? Like the sun, the glory of the sun is the light that goes forth in the sun. And God creates to display the attributes of his nature, to glorify himself. And also glory can sometimes be used of praise and honor and worship, adoration. And that too, that God created displaying the attributes of his nature so that his creation in turn might honor and praise him, right? And so both of those things are seen in scripture. Let's look at a few verses. If I could have someone look up Isaiah 43, 7, who would do that for me? All right, Isaiah, would someone be willing to look up? Oh, there we go. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. Someone look up Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. Quinn, and then someone look up Romans 9, 22 through 24. All right. Okay, so let's, let's start with Isaiah 43, 7. What does that say? Everyone who is called by my name, and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Okay, so in this context, he's obviously talking about um, the nation of Israel. And there's a sense in which he, he created the nation of Israel. But when he talks about creating and forming and making, it draws your mind back that to them as human beings, right? To their... To the, to the creation event um, in the beginning and, and to the fact that they are creatures of God. And in this text, he, he just explicitly says that he created them as human beings for his glory, right? Um, so that's probably the most famous text in terms of the explicitly saying that human beings are created for his glory. There are other texts as well. If... Um, Quinn, could you read Ephesians 1, 11 through 12? In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so particularly 11 through 12, and this is, as you know, there's like three different times in this passage where he says that we were, uh, that his redemptive work in our lives was to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. So obviously we're just taking one slice of humanity, right? He's saying, from before the foundation of the world, he predestined to save them, to redeem them, to adopt them, and that the end result would be that they would be to the praise of his glory. Right? So we, we know that within this text is this truth radiating forth that part of the purpose of God's creation of the world in which he unfolds this plan of redemption is that it would all resound to the praise of his glory. That people would praise as they see the demonstration and the outshining of all these perfections of his nature displayed in his redemptive work. Okay, so that's another text. Now let's go to a more controversial text, a text that in some ways makes us balk, not because there's anything wrong with it, but because we as frail, finite, and corrupted human beings struggle to accept and understand some of the truths here. But I want you to 
face this text for a moment and see something that it says on this issue. So Romans 9, 22-24, Scott, if you could read that for us. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory, or vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Okay, so to this point, you might have been saying, okay, Jeremy, I understand. There's a sense in which we have seen in Isaiah that you know, God created people for His glory, and we've seen how His redemptive work displays His glory and results in praise. But what about, what about people that aren't saved? How, how does that bring glory? Do you see this passage sort of brings it all together? Yes, it's, there's mysterious things that we have to work through in our mind. Yes, there's a lot that we would have to unpack to really understand this passage. But nevertheless, He is saying both in the destruction of the wicked and in the redemption of His remnant, from both Jews and Gentiles. There is a, an outshining, a display of his attributes. On the one hand, to show his wrath and to make his power known, to glorify those aspects of his nature. And on the other, to display his, the riches of his mercy and to bring some to glory. And that all of it together, you see, serves to, to bring to display his, his nature, to glorify himself is another way of putting it. And notice that he ties it in with creation. What if he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and then vessels of mercy prepared beforehand? In other words, this plan goes back to the very purpose of his creating the world in the beginning. So, difficult text, but I want you to see it because it sort of ties everything together. And yes, I understand there are things that we have to work through there, but there is no doubt that when you read the Bible, layer upon layer, from beginning to end, you see that the purpose of God in creation was not out of need, but out like a fountain overflowing from itself, bubbling forth, right, is... God created the world to display His glory. He's working out a plan of redemption to display the various aspects of His perfections so that praise might be brought to Him, both from men and from angels. Okay, so that's, that's a pretty different purpose than blind, pitiless indifference and meaninglessness, right? And... By the way, I would say that it resonates with us. You can tell me that my life has no purpose as a human being. You can say that to me. And I might, even for a period of time in my life, say I believe it. But who really believes it? Certainly no one lives where they cannot, you know, in a, any kind of healthy way, live their life as if they themselves and their life have no purpose and this world has no purpose. We intuitively know that that's not true. Why do we know that's true? Because we have been made in the image of God. You can't erase it from our natures, can you? Okay, now the next question that we want to dive into then is, okay, God created mankind for His glory. 
Now, we know that mankind will glorify him both in their rebellion and in their redemption. But what I want to do is I want to talk about what God's intention is, right? So you look at the Ten Commandments, they tell us the revealed will of God, right? This is God's will in one sense. Now, we also know we could speak about God's will in terms of his unfolding secret purposes. But in terms of his revealed will, his moral will for creation, what what is the intended purpose for mankind? How did he intend man that he has made a special creation to bring him glory? And that's the question I want to get into here. And I want to say that every the answer to that is going to flow out of, everything is going to flow out of the fact that God made man in his own image. And we're going to actually spend a whole session talking about what is the image of God. But right now, I want to just, I, I want to just make the point that it, everything we're going to talk about in terms of how man was intended to glorify God is tied in with and is rooted in the fact that we, out of all the creatures of the world, right, are made in his image. An illustration that I have heard and used, if you were, you were in your house and all of a sudden, you know, a, a great wildfire is, starts near in town, is sweeping toward your house, you have your children in the house, you also have, you know, valuables, heirlooms, maybe this cash of money, Right in these days, now, now you don't trust the banks anymore. So you've got like twenty thousand dollars in your mattress, and 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 you have your family pet in the house, and you can only have time to go in and save one out of all those things. We recognize that each of them has some degree of value, but who are you going to save? Right? There is no question about it. It would be morally wrong and degenerate to go save um, your money over your child or even your family pet, right? If it comes down to it, Fido's going and you're going to save your children, right? Why is that? We all know it to be true. We know it would be morally wrong to do anything else, but why? It's because we are made in the image of God, right? And there is some inherent value that is superior to all else in creation. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. And, and so this is, everything is rooted in this. Um, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man, mankind, in our image, after our likeness. And some people have pointed out the plural there, our image, our likeness, and how it portended the fact that mankind would be made a plurality in the midst of their unity. There's one mankind, but the one mankind is male and female. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Okay, so now, how does man, how is man intended by God to bring him glory? In terms of his revealed intent for creation, it's all rooted in that fact that we are made in his image, especially out of all the creatures. Now, I want to go through uh, a few different aspects here of how the scriptures teach 
that man as an image bearer is to glorify God. And the first is that he created us to relate to him personally. That's one way that we are to bring glory to God, right? Uh, Horses, apes, rocks, trees don't relate to God. They are not personal creatures, but as image bearers, we are personal. And part of how we are to glorify God is through relating to him, right? So, um, if you look in Genesis one twenty-seven, you see our personhood. Uh, God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And you know that that male and female speaks to our personhood, right? Because by the end of Genesis 2, what are men and women, what is a man and a wife doing, right? They're coming into a covenant relationship with one another. That the, the male and femaleness speaks to our personality, our relationality, that he's created us that way. Also, you see it in the fact that he speaks to us. In fact, just after he says, God created man in his own image in 127, what does it say in 128? And God blessed them, and God said to them. He suddenly speaks to his creatures. And now you know that this is a, these are personal creatures because they are given language. They can understand God's words. You know, rocks don't understand God's words, and neither do giraffes. But human beings do. Fish certainly don't. <laughs> human beings. Sharks definitely do not. Also, we see that they are moral creatures, right? So, if you watch a nature program, you see animals doing things. I won't go into detail. <laughs> Including killing one another. But you don't send the police out to arrest them for murder, do you? They're not moral creatures. They're operating on instinct. But if a man kills another man, well, because man is made in the image of God, then that is murder, right? And so you see that man is a moral creature. In fact, in 2.9, it comes out right here in the creation account. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for the food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he gives man a command later on. A moral command. And there's a consequence for his breaking that command. So man is personal. They are a speaking creature. They are a moral creature. And when, and how are... Uh, what are some ways that God intends man to relate to him? In other words, okay, he's made us this way as personal, speaking, moral creatures. Part of how we glorify him is we are to relate to him. But we don't glorify him by relating to him any old way, right? We, there's a certain way we are to relate to him. How does the Bible say that we are to relate to him? Well, one is that man is to believe in God. Would someone look up a Hebrews 11.6 and as soon as you have it, Let's read it together. Hebrews eleven six. And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Right, so there's a context to the verse, and it's important to understand the argument he's making, but we can step back and say, What is he saying? 
without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Right? Well, what if a soldier jumps on a grenade for, to save his fellow soldiers, and they're all pagans? Is that a morally good thing? Well, in a relative sense, it is, right? But apart from faith in God, no act has ultimate moral goodness, right? Um, that faith in God, a posture of belief and trust in God is the foundation for all morally pleasing activity before God. So, one is that we are to believe in God, trust in Him. We're also to worship Him. What is the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. And in Romans chapter 1, when God says that His wrath Paul says that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What is at the core of the unrighteousness of men? Although they knew God, because His attributes are revealed in creation, some of them, they did not honor Him or give Him thanks, but what did they do instead? They exchanged Him out for idols. They worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And what that speaks to is the fact that Man was intended to believe in God and to worship Him. And there it tells you, what does that worship consist of? Honoring Him. Giving thanks to Him. Also, how is man to relate to God in a way that glorifies Him? To love Him, right? I remember having this conversation with a a man who attended the church on a Sunday and I would preached this sermon from the Gospel of Luke that was pretty like, you know, and I knew he wasn't a believer. I knew he was sitting right there in the front row. And I talked to him afterwards and asked him what he thought. And he said, yeah, you know, I think religion is good for people, but I, I'm, I think I'm a pretty good person. I don't need religion to be a good person. And I thought, no. See, he doesn't understand the moral law of God. Because what is at the very beating heart center of God's law as it's revealed in Scripture? Right? It's not just you know, being a good husband and providing for your family and being honest at your job. and All those things are certainly required, but what is the greatest commandment? God being God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that was given to Israel, not because God said, you know what, this doesn't really apply to other human beings, but for my people, I'm going to ask them to do this. No, it was a reflection Israel was to reflect in loving God with their whole what mankind was meant to do from the beginning, right? This is how we glorify Him. We believe in Him. We worship Him alone and we love Him above all. And next, man is to obey God fully. You see this right there in Genesis chapter 2, right? Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Would someone read those verses? Genesis 2, 16 and 17. This is right after he's created him, put him in a garden. What happens? The Lord God commanded the man, saying, For any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on that day you eat from it, you will surely die. Yeah, so there, you know, we need to be so careful that we don't interpret this verse as like God becomes in our mind, you know, 
the nun in the boarding school saying, you better not, or else. No, this is in the context of God, God's goodness. and you know He's our creator. He's, he's put Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, of every tree you eat, of every tree you see, you may eat. But, and he gives them one command. And that, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil really represented the boundary, right? That they would submit to God's loving and good leadership. They would trust in his word. And so part of how we are, were intended to glorify God was to submit to his authority and to obey his law because we trust him that he is good and he knows what is best for us. And then also man is to delight in God, right? You think of Psalm 16, 11, and I'll just, I'll just read it for the sake of time here. The psalmist says to God, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In other words, how do we glorify God? Not just by treating him like the great slave master in the sky but by believing in him that he is good, like he's a fountain and coming to drink of him, right? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We are called to make God the ultimate object of our delight, right? That we would taste and see that he is good. And so these are just a sampling, but these are the ways that God has intended man to bring him glory. And they're rooted in the fact that he is an image bearer of God. Out of all the creatures of the earth that we alone have his image. And how are we to, re- to relate to him in these ways? But And we're going to have to go through these more quickly for the sake of time here. Because I want to get to my last slide, but I have two before. So let's work through these more quickly. Another way that man is intended by God to glorify him is to rule on his behalf. So if you look at the creation narrative, they are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and do what? Take dominion over it. So man, as God's image bearers, relating to him in all the ways that we've said, was to fill the earth. And as they did that, they were to exercise dominion over that. But you know it wasn't an autonomous dominion because he'd already given them a command, right? (laughs) So they were to under God's authority, submitting to his rule in their life, they were then to exercise a God-given stewardship of ruling over the earth. And so we see that in the, in the dominion uh, narrative, but also, or command, but also in the cultivation command that God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said that they were to work it and to keep it. And that was language that would have been typical to agriculture in that day, working, cultivating the land. And then also the language of keeping would have been guarding. And But it's interesting that that command couldn't have been contained simply to the garden. Why do we know it couldn't have pertained only to the garden? Because what else were they supposed to do? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? So it seems that in a sense they were to extend the garden out, cultivating the land, taking dominion, bringing order. The other day we were out at the class's house working on that. And I said, at some point I thought to myself, 
or taken dominion, right? Because this is what we do. You go to a house, there's weeds everywhere, it's all dilapidated, and you go in and you start tinkering. Why? Because we're made in the image of God, and He's given us a stewardship to take dominion over the earth so that, in a sense, we would be creating little gardens, right? Wherever we go. And then also that we would be under God's authority, of course. So while we're ruling the earth, taking dominion over it, cultivating it, it's not on our own, right? So there's a sense in which there is something good in Cain going out and making cities and and his descendants doing metallurgy and music and these things, but there is also a sense in which there was something nefarious about it. Why? Because they were doing it apart from God not under his dominion, for their own selfish purposes. And and when does that climax in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, where God comes and judges them again? Next, another way that we are intended to glorify God, not only by relating to him and ruling the earth under him, but also by reflecting his character. Right? So there's a sense I've told my kids this from the beginning. When we talk about what does it mean to be in the image of God, in the likeness of God. And I say, well, there is a very rudimentary sense in which the language of image is like if you go into the bathroom and you look at yourself in the mirror, what do you see? You see an image of you. And what does it look like? It looks like you, right? Now, of course, that's rudimentary, right? It's, it's, um, it's not... To be taken in a straightforwardly literal way because God is a spirit. He doesn't look like anything in that sense. He's, he doesn't have a body like men, like the old catechisms say. However, the language of image and likeness, there is something that is communicating that is that in a way that we can understand that we were made to be like God in certain ways. And I think the most easy to see and fundamental way in which that is the case is that image bearers are to reflect something of the character of God in their life. And in fact, you can see this later on when God redeems a remnant of humanity, the nation of Israel, out of slavery and bondage to sin and enters into covenant with them. And he gives them a calling. He gives them a new identity and then a new calling. And that calling echoes back. Something of what was lost in Eden was to be restored in the nation of Israel. What was at the core of that calling? Lord, your God is holy, therefore you shall be holy as I am holy. That they were to reflect the character of God. And how were they to do that? Was it just figure it out on your own? He gave them the law, right? And the law was, as they obeyed the commands of God, they would reflect his character. They would be a a holy people in the world. And so, I think this idea of reflecting God's character is inherent in image. In fact, Ephesians 4.24 actually makes us explicit. In our redeemed self, we are to... to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. What does that mean? In true righteousness and holiness. To be in the image of God, to be renewed into the image of God, means reflecting His holy character in our life. We also know that it's hardwired into every human being a sense of the fact that we're supposed to be moral. And I quoted Romans 2 there. Does anyone remember what that passage talks about? Romans 2, 14-15? 
Right. The work of the law. He says, when you see the Gentiles who do not have the law doing what the law requires, it shows that the work of the law is written on their heart so that their own conscience bears witness, either condemning them or confirming them, right? That mankind, because they're made in the image of God, they, they have an internal sense, their conscience, to what is right and wrong before God. And it testifies to the fact that even if they deny their conscience and violate their conscience, which they do, of course, which we all do by, because we're sinners, um, yet we are convicted by, by our conscience and it testifies to us of our original purpose to glorify God by reflecting His holy character in our life, right? So guilt, right? is sort of like what pain is to the body, guilt is to the soul, testifying to us of that original purpose that we all have as human beings, as image bearers. And then, of course, it is the goal of redemption. So when God redeems us out of that state of moral defilement and desensitized conscience and guilt and judgment, He forgives us, He washes us free of the guilt, but then He calls us back to what we were supposed to do. He actually, and he doesn't just call us to it, he creates us anew in his image so that we are gradually being more and more conformed to his image, reflecting in our character what we were supposed to do. So if you, if you look at 1 Peter 1, 14-15, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written in Leviticus 11.44, you should be holy, for I am holy. Right? Now, what are the implications of this? We've come to the end of our time. I want to just try to help you to see you know, how important this is and how transformative this is to human beings to, to know their original purpose, where they came from, and why they are here. Let's put it that way. Where they came from, why they are here. What does it do for us? Well, it gives us our true origin story. It's not an accident that we're here. We're not the product of blind, meaningless, deterministic events. We are God's creatures. It, it explains the meaning of our life. You know, people talk about what is the meaning of life. Oh, <laughs> you could never know that. You know, everyone has their opinion, but no one really knows the true answer. No, the Bible does give us the true meaning of life, right? <laughs> that our lives aren't just pointless. You know, the French existentialists like Foucault and Camus, they tried to turn their face to, to reckon with, you know, the, what evolutionary naturalism taught them. That they're just, you know, the product of, Time plus matter plus chance. And they, their lives don't really have meaning. And they tried to live consistently with it. And they were they succumbed to nihilism. And there was despair and agony. And some of you who, you know, go back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s and the period of when, when their writings were in vogue, you know something of the effect of that kind of nihilistic thinking. 
where Francis Schaeffer used to say that even though they believed that, they kept trying to jump up into the upper story and grab hold of some meaning and purpose in their life because they'd rejected it formally. And, and so they were trying to live consistently with that, and it led to degeneration, despair. And, you know, Camus had the famous uh, adage that the only real question in life is whether or not to commit suicide, right? Well, here we have... <laughs> it's simple, right? But if you believe what the Bible says about us, it gives us the point of our life, the meaning of our life, to glorify the one who made us in his image, right? It also provides the ground of human dignity. You know, we're living in a time that is scary, isn't it? As people reject the, the foundation of Western civilization in this sort of Judeo-Christian worldview, the idea of a creator at least, and man as his creatures, and the image of God, it's scary because... It dehumanizes, it, it takes the dignity away from humanity. So that if the purpose of my life is to get as much pleasure out of my life as possible, then, you know, other human beings are getting in the way of that. Or, you know, too many human beings on this planet means that we won't have enough resources to get by. So we really need to sort of degrow down. And if that means that people die, well, that's just sort of the way of the world. But the Bible gives us the ground for human dignity. It's not true that, you know, as that horrific song said, you and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals. No, we're not just mammals. We're not no different than plants and rocks and trees. We are God's image bearers. We have dignity. That song is horrific because it so dehumanizes and guts humanity of its dignity. This is why. Not because we are morally upright, because we're sinners, we're fallen, but because we are made in the image of God and he, He's woven each one of us in our mother's womb. It highlights the gravity of human sin too, doesn't it? Because on the one hand, to know this origin story says, Oh, I have dignity, I have purpose, I have meaning, but then you start realizing, but I haven't lived up to it. I have turned inward. I have made myself the ultimate God. I've wanted autonomy. I've wanted to do what I want to do. I've lived for myself at the expense of others. And you start, once you know the origin story, it helps you to see the depth and gravity of sin, doesn't it? And the ugliness of human pride and selfishness and idolatry that we would spurn the one who made us in his image to bring him glory. This is why Paul says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Rightly so. Because are we are a rebellious race who has tried to take God off his throne and put ourselves there instead. But also, and, and it explains our guilt, it forebodes judgment. And when you start seeing all these things, and you see, ah, it is right here at this very point that we see the foundation for understanding the gospel. That we needed, we needed to be redeemed. And God indeed did that in the most striking way possible. By God the Son, 
coming at the behest of God the Father into his creation, taking on humanity, full humanity, body and soul, and doing what we could not do as the second Adam, as our representative head, living a perfectly righteous life so that just as Adam's sin was credited to us because he was our head, so the second Adam's righteousness could be credited to us. And then going as a lamb, a spotless lamb, taking our place because he's one of us. Because he was a man, he could take the place of men and standing as our substitute and hanging in agony upon the cross and being forsaken and going through hell and bearing God's wrath against all our selfishness and pride and idolatry and all of its ugly fruits and paying all that off in full and then rising again out of the grave in victory that we might live in Him, be justified in Him, be reconciled through Him, be adopted and made a new humanity in whom the Spirit of God is now renewing within us the image of God which we see perfectly in the man, Jesus Christ. Right? So, but, but without this origin story, that doesn't make sense. This is the foundation. This is why if you're evangelizing today, most likely you've got to go back to the beginning. Right? The number one, the first thing you need to know is that God created the heavens and the earth and that God made man in his own image. And for this reason, we have these responsibilities. And now we can see why our lives have fallen so short of that glory and why we need redemption. All right, let's close in prayer. I'm happy to talk with you after if you want to ask questions, but let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this time reflecting upon your word and this incredible story, origin story that we have in the book of Genesis and, and throughout the Bible, how you teach us who we are and why we are here. Lord, we rejoice and glory in the, the great calling which we have, the, the deep dignity which we have, the, the profound purpose that our lives have. And yet, Lord, we grieve over how far short we have fallen. Oh, Lord, our pride that remains, our selfishness, the way we live for ourselves, the way we exchange the truth about you for a lie and worship created things rather than you in our, because of our flesh, because we're sinners. And we thank you for the redemption that you have provided in Christ, the second Adam, how he has inaugurated a new creation, how we are new creatures in him. The old is gone. Things are becoming new. And we long for that day when we will be finally rid of these bodies of death and from every last bit of corruption and enjoy perfect communion with you and radiate your glory in our lives in the way that we should have done. And we pray that even now we would be striving for that by the power of the Spirit to put off the old man with its deceitful desires and to put on the new man created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness, to live for your glory in all that we do. Oh God, we need you. Please work in us, even through this. Wash us with the water of your word this morning. Sanctify us by your truth and equip us to 
share the good news with others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.